Now, last week, we saw really one of the most undeniable uh, places in the Bible that is the evidence that we do have a perfect, complete, inspired Word of God. You know, I believed that for over 50 years now. I've been in the ministry almost 50, but before I even got into it, I, that was the first thing. I, I remember when I just got right with the Lord, <coughs> I didn't have a Bible. <coughs> and years later, or years before that, my dad, uh, back at the old Canton Baptist Temple, which was right across the street, they had a Sunday school campaign, and uh, my dad uh, won it. And uh, he, what he won was a, a red uh, old Schofield Bible. And uh, I didn't have a Bible at the time. And, and my mom said, well, here, this is the one that dad uh, won. Uh, and so she gave me that. And I, I actually, uh, you know, that's the Bible that I started out with. And I remember when I first went to camp to help them there, <clears throat> one of the kids uh, looked at my Bible and, uh, and he says, uh, well, what kind of Bible do you have? And I knew nothing about the issue at that point. My answer was a red one, <laughs> you know. And uh, he said, "No, is it a King James Bible?" And I said, "I, I, I think." And he looked at it. He said, "Oh, it's okay." That was my first introduction that there was really an issue. Uh, of course, I had been out of it for so many years. I was, uh, you know, had no clue about the the battle that was going on over the Bible that was really just beginning to take off and lift. And so, but that was my first encounter with that. And from that point on, you know, I, I fell in love with the book and I realized that I had the greatest possession that anybody could ever have on this planet. And that is the perfect, absolute, true word of God, inspired and preserved without error uh, that I could have the mind of Christ. You know, I've talked about 1 Timothy 3.16, how that God was manifested in the flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ. But then we've talked about in chapter 1, verse 14 last week, that the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. You cannot separate God, the Lord Jesus, or the Word of God. They're all one in the same. And it, it's a thing where I, I gave you one of the great key aspects to understanding how you got your Bible and your Bible in, in a general way. And that was the word that I looked at last week and showed you the word translate or translation. And uh, you find it only five times in your Bible. But every time, and I gave you examples last week, <clears throat> every time that you find it, you'll find that it never in the Bible, it never is used in the, in the sense that it's used today in Christianity and the world as going from one language to another. Obviously, when you do go from one language to another, you do translate. But the Bible doesn't use it that way. And again, the Bible is its own dictionary. But rather, the word translate or translation in the Bible is one place to another. And I showed you how that that worked through to show you how that uh, uh, you have uh, translated for you uh, from heaven to Christ to you the perfect word of God. And, uh, you know, the standard argument today, and you will, you will get into these as you grow and you learn if you decide to do that, is the fact that... Uh, now, the reason why they're so uh, hip on going to the Greek and the Hebrew uh, is because they will tell you that coming from the Greek or the Hebrew uh, into English, that you'll lose some things in the translation. No language will translate to another language perfectly. And, of course, that's true. There's no question about that. 
And so they say that when you, when you go from the thing that just makes this, your King James Bible, just a translation, and the original autographs, as we've talked about last week, as the true, pure Word of God, is that when you take that original and you translate it into English, you don't get what exact translation would be. So therefore, you don't have, uh, because the Greek and the Hebrew in the original is the perfect thing. So you don't have it in perfect. And that's what they teach. And of course, uh, uh, and they call those idioms in, in the translating world. Um, they call them idioms, and the guys who tell you those things, I call them idiots, but it's okay. It kind of rhymes. But, uh, you know, that is true. There's no question about that. You go from one language to another, you will lose some things through the translation. But, come on, you also gain some things, and they don't want to talk to you about that. Just as God defined the word translate and translation for us in the Bible he also defines for us the word inspiration. And again, God doesn't use the word inspiration the same way that the Bible scholars use it. And uh, you'll see that very, very clearly. You know, it's, it's never about the exact word-for-word translation. Now, listen to me now. It's never about the exact, you got to have a word-from-word exact translation from the original Greek. And I, and I, I use the original Greek when I'm talking about it, because they do. But we saw last week that there's no such thing as original Greek. The closest Greek or Greek Testament that they have to uh, the Bible time is 400 years later. And, you know, you're going to think that those were the originals is, is a pipe dream. And, of course, uh, uh, but that's what they want you to believe. But it's never about, in God's definition of inspiration, it's never about an exact word-for-word word translation. But it's more rather what God wants you to get or have out of that translation. For example, and I don't know why they can't see this. If somebody is stupid as I can pick it up, they ought to be able to get it. You know, you take Moses and Pharaoh back in Exodus chapter 4, verse 12. Moses goes in before Pharaoh. Now, here's a good example. <clears throat> Moses goes in before Pharaoh, <clears throat> and they converse. They speak. Now, you know they spoke in Egyptian. Pharaoh cared nothing for the Hebrews. He wouldn't lower himself to speak to Moses in Hebrew. Moses was raised in Egyptian, so he spoke in Egyptian. So when they have that conversation in chapter 4 of the book of Exodus, they're speaking in Egyptian. But in your Bible, it's recorded in Hebrew. So you know what? You didn't get exactly what they said. Because when it was translated from Egyptian to Hebrew back in the day, it didn't line up either. So there's your first case in the Bible where it doesn't have to be a word for word because it can't be a word for word. And when Moses spoke to Pharaoh, they spoke in Egyptian, but it's recorded in Hebrew for you to have it in English, and it didn't line up. I'll tell you another one. Over there in Genesis when Genesis 44 and 45, when Joseph is down in Egypt. Now, he's, he's second in command in Egypt, and his brothers, the Hebrews, who sold him into slavery a while back, they finally get together, and he's very harsh on them. And they have conversations, and you know that he did not speak to them in Hebrew. He didn't want to give himself away. 
he spoke to them in Egyptian through a translator. And of course, again, the conversation that they had is recorded for you in your Bible, but it's spoken in Egyptian, translated into Hebrew, and then translated back into your Bible. Again, you didn't get exactly what they said. You see, inspiration in the Bible will never be about a word-for-word matchup in the translation. Inspiration is God can go from one language to another, and this is the key to it. You don't need exactly what is said. What you want, what you have in the King James Bible, after the translation was done, because of God's hand in the translation and his preserving the translation and his inspiring the translation, you may not have a word-for-word across the board but you have exactly what God wanted you to have. That has to be the key. That's Bible inspiration defined for you through the Word of God. Now, when it comes uh, to your Bible and learning it, the reason why, and we talked about this last week, the reason why there was never a Bible, Bible means books, the reason why there was never a book or a Bible that had all the originals, that they like to throw that word around, the originals, the original, the reason why God never put all the originals of the Greek and the Hebrew in one book to have an absolute Hebrew Old Testament and an absolute perfect Greek New Testament because they're worthless. God never saw fit to preserve them. If you think for a moment that when David wrote or 1 Samuel or any of those guys were talking and quoting the Old Testament, that they had the original that Moses penned, you're out of your mind. If you think that Paul had the original of whatever Moses said or whatever Samuel said or whatever Joshua said, you're out of your mind. God never preserved or kept the original Hebrews or the original Greek, whatever it was written on. He never did because he knew they were going to be worthless. And that's where he, he drew the line. In 1532, a guy by the name of William Tyndale. William Tyndale gave us our second English translation of the Bible. Wycliffe was the first one back in 1200. But William Tyndale in the 1532 gave us the second English translation of the right text in English that was a forerunner for your King James Bible. When the King James Bible translators sat down to give you the King James Bible, they had both Wycliffe's and Tyndale's Bible on their table. And 95% of your King James Bible is Tyndale's Bible. The second English translation... These guys had a, they guys saw it. They had a burden to get the Bible to the common man. In fact, in 1532, with the scholars in a little room, Tyndale, defending his Bible, looked out the window at a boy that was plowing a field right across the road. And he said to the great scholars, there will come a day when that plow boy shall understand God and the Bible more than all the scholars in England. He saw what God was doing. And he was talking about an English Bible in English to the common man that was formalized and finalized in what you have in your lap today if you have a King James 1611 authorized version. Then also, you remember last week, we looked at the word dwelt. 
uh, in the phrase as he, in, he dwelt among us, Christ. And we connected it with the seven feasts in the Old Testament, uh, the tabernacle in the ark and the seven months of the feast and came down to show you how that it was dealing with the feast of tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles is the uh, is is in the Bible time was around September chap- September chapter yeah September twenty second or twenty third. That's the original time of the month of the creation in Genesis chapter one verse one or verse two anyhow when he re- restructures everything. It's also the time of the first coming of Christ when he came the first time he came during the Feast of Tabernacles. And it's also will be the time of the second coming, Feast of Tabernacles, where God comes down and tabernacles among men. And I explained that to you. Then we looked at the phrase, we beheld his glory. And I focused on the two aspects. At the first coming of Christ, we beheld his glory through the very person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the incarnate word. Today, we behold his glory through the written word. Uh, the Word of God in, in your lap today, King James 1611 authorized version, through God translating it, not from one language to another, though it was, but in God's mind from one place to another, and we laid that out. Then we looked at the only begotten Son, Christ the first in a long line uh, during the church age of spiritual sons of God who were transformed at salvation and then conformed as you go through life Uh, to the image and the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. So verse 14 last week, without a doubt, and that's all the farther we got was that one verse, uh, was one of the greatest verses in all the Bible that shows us that we have the true, complete, absolute, perfect Word of God. Now today, we're going to get a little bit farther in this, and uh, we're actually going to look at verse 15, 16, and 17. And uh, I want to read it here. It says, John bear witness of him... And cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Josh, would you stand up and ask God's blessing on the message this morning for me? Lord, thank you. Now, again, uh, we will break down uh, this passage into three or four sections uh, to see all that God has for us. Now, there's different ways to teach the Bible. And, of course, uh, uh, the big wigs would call what we're doing here uh, expository preaching. And that's their big $25 word for just going through the Bible verse by verse, looking at everything word by word, establishing the context. But they can't just leave it alone. Uh, they got to give it some big fancy name. So if you were up in the upper echelons of preaching and pastors and theological guys, they would be called today, we're doing expository preaching. Some of the great pastors out there that I, you wouldn't waste your time listening to are billed as the greatest expository preachings of our day. In my mind, it's more like they're great suppository preachers because of what they put out. But you can figure that one out yourself. But with our approach to the Bible, each word is important. Each verse is important. And when we lay it out the way we're doing it, uh, and, you know, I don't teach the same way everything. You'll see on Thursday night I teach differently. In Bible Institute, I teach differently. 
Uh, there's times that I'll preach on a topical subject. But when you get to do a book, and you will find out whenever, if you ever pastor a church, I never forget, I asked Mel years and years and years ago, uh, I, I thought it was really easy to, to pastor and just preach every Sunday. Because you like to preach and you want to preach. Um, he told me, he says, well, he says, you can't preach on a constant basis to a church on topical subjects. He says, you'll run out of topics very quickly. You've got, to do a, you've got to do a book series or you've got to do something where you teach verse by verse and lay it out. Uh, otherwise, you'll be out of material very quickly. And a lot of guys, that's, they don't understand that. So they'll get up there and they'll have, they'll have maybe 10 firecracker sermons for 10 weeks and then they're out of gas. And, uh, you know, and, and, and that's why so many of the guys today, honestly, there are churches that you go to that every time you go there, I don't care where the pastor starts, uh, he'll give you a verse out of Psalms and then he'll depart and he'll preach on getting saved and trusting Christ as your own personal Savior. And wherever he goes, whatever he does, he'll teach you nothing about the Bible itself because all he knows is to get saved and that's why his sermons week after week after week are salvation sermons. And after a while, I mean, hey, I'm all for getting people saved, but you know what? You've got to feed your people something more than that. What is the point of, of giving a thousand verses in a sermon about being saved to a church that everybody's saved in? There's no edification in that. That just shows how lacking you are in your ability to be able to lay out the Word of God and give people something that they can deal with. You don't need to know tomorrow how to be saved. You need to know how to get through tomorrow. And of course, uh, you know, this is so you, you approach it differently and everything. And a lot of these guys, that's all they know how to do. They'll get up and they'll preach their candy stick sermons and, and then some of these other guys. Where, I ain't kidding you. Wherever they go, it's always a soul-winning message. And uh, you know what? And the people are so stupid that they just listen to it and, and think that they're really getting something. And yet that's why they have so many issues in their life because that doesn't edify anybody unless you're unsaved. But that's, you know, so you got, when it comes to the Bible, you can find out very quickly the depth of a man or a woman uh, with the Bible by just what they put out. And I listen to them all the time, man. I hear them all the time. I heard them all my life. And you can summon up in about 15 minutes who knows the Bible. Now, when my guys preach here, when my guys preach around here, you get something. I mean, they have depth to them. We got some great preachers in this church that really know how to preach the Bible. And when you sit down and listen to them, you get something. But I'm telling you, you don't find that very often. And it's, it, it speaks well of the men uh, and the women in our church who, and, and I know women aren't supposed to preach, but we got women in the church who really know their Bible. I ain't kidding you. And, uh, you know, it's a, uh, I'll never forget one time, a bunch of us guys back, we were, I was just a Christian running around with these guys. And we would go to charismatic tent revivals. Because if you knew what you were doing, if you knew what, and they taught me to wrote, if you knew what you were doing, uh, you'd always get a chance to testify and get things straightened out and preach to them. We were at a tent revival one time, and, a, and, you know, and I had been in it for a while, so I was picking up the ropes, and the guy, charismatic guy, you know, he's got a whole tent full of people, and he's preaching this goofy stuff. And so he says, I'd like the happiest person in this place to come up and testify. And before anybody else, I got my hand up, and I said, I'm the happiest guy here. Come on up, brother. I preached for the next 30 minutes against charismatic movement. 
you had to find a spot. Well, anyway, we went one time to this little storefront, and there was a little a gal, an evangelist preacher. Now, this girl, she had to weigh 110 pounds soaking wet. She was skinny. Nothing wrong with that. But she, she was just a little thing is what I'm trying to say. I'm telling you, she flat preached the paint off the walls. She stomped, she snorted, she was into it. And I thought to myself at that point, you know what? Uh, now that gal can preach. She preached better than most guys I heard. And so there again, you know, you always get a, get a cross thing of how this thing goes in Christianity today. And a woman's not the pastor, but a woman is the preach. Every time you sit down and you disciple somebody based on Acts chapter 8, you're preaching. So it's a thing where there's different styles, different things that you do. When we come to a book, I teach you like I taught myself. I don't want to leave any stones unturned. If there's something in here, I want it. And if we're doing it together, there's something in here that I want, I want you to have it. Maybe you won't do anything with it, but, you know, that's just where it's at. Now, verse 15 says, John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This is he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. Now, historically, you know, we we understand all this. We see John the Baptist preaching to the nation of Israel about the coming Christ. And he was prophesied in the Old Testament to show up. And we'll get into that in a couple of weeks. And he's telling them that the Messiah that they have been looking for is now here. And there's some reasons why they missed it. We'll get into that too in a couple of weeks. But he's bearing witness that uh, uh, what was prophesied in the Old Testament has now come to pass and Christ is their Messiah. Now that's the historical thing that's happening. We all get that. I want to talk about the inspirational side of it, the, uh, the personal side of it. Inspirationally, we see in John the Baptist And I don't know if you saw this or not, but we see in John the Baptist exactly what we should be and what we should be doing as Christians. Look at him as an example. And we see five key areas. And I want to just briefly go through this. First of all, I want you to notice that he's totally separate from the world. He came out of the wilderness. The way he dresses is different from the world that he comes into. The things that he eats are different from the world that he's come into. Bible makes it clear that he tells you about his clothing, camel's hair, and what he eats. Bugs. Locusts. I've always imagined him with a guy, big guy, with a camel hair, kind of a Fred Flintstone outfit on, you know, big burly with a big beard with, with locust wings stuck all in him. You know, it's a, he was totally... He was totally different from the world that he came into. I'll tell you something out. He's not a part in any way with any religious establishment or group. He has nothing to do with the established religion of his day. He's separate from all that. He won't mess with the scribes. He won't mess with the Pharisees. And he certainly won't mess with the Sadducees. He's completely separated from any religious system. I'll tell you something else. He's feared and hated by the system. Both politically, Rome, and both religiously, uh, the, the leaders of the nation of Israel. He scares the fire out of them because he's so radically different and he won't line up to where they're at. And the next thing is he comes to a nation that is in total apostasy 
and he tells them of God's coming judgment, which is soon to follow, which is, again, is laid out in Matthew chapter 3, where he tells them, you know what? There's one coming that's going to baptize you with the Holy Ghost. That's the first coming of Christ. And then baptize you with fire. That's the second coming and the lake of fire, the great white throne judgment. I always thought it was hilarious that the stupid, absolutely ridiculous charismatics will get up and tell you that once you get saved, you need to pray for the baptism of the Holy Ghost and fire. And they liken the fire there in Matthew 3 to the power of God. And what they're so stupid they don't knowing that they're actually saying you need to pray for God to give you the Holy Spirit and then send you to the lake of fire. Which is a good idea as far as I'm concerned, but, uh, but that's how dumb they are. And, and, and the next thing, in his whole ministry, he does to Israel and the world what we should be doing today to our apostate church and the world system, bearing witness. Bearing witness to a lost Christianity, bearing witness to a lost nation, bearing witness to a lost world of who Christ is and the salvation that has come to all mankind. And he's doing, as our example at the first coming of Christ, what we should be doing right now before the second coming of Christ, and that's being a witness for the Lord Jesus. Not only is he telling us that Christ is the true light that will light every man in John 1, he's also telling us and Israel that Christ is the eternal Son of God, the Word of God manifested to the world in the flesh. And if when we receive him, he gives us the power to be a Son of God. Now, historically, that's Israel as God's Son, Exodus 4. Inspirationally, it's me and you. Then in verse 16, he says, and of his fullness. You know, the Bible teaches us that at salvation, we get all that God is and all that God has. The Bible says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 10, that when you and I got saved, it says, and ye are complete in him, which the head of all principality and power. The day you got saved, you have all of God that there is. Now, I know the charismatics teach that you don't get it all. And so you've got to ask for the second blessing or you've got to ask for the baptism of the Holy Ghost, which is totally, completely, just as, about as messed up doctrine as you could ever hope to find. But when did a charismatic ever know anything about the Bible? So they say that once you get saved, you don't get it all. So you've got to ask God to empower you based on Acts chapter 1 and 2, the day of Pentecost. And of course, that's where they begin their heresy. But the truth of the matter is the moment you got saved... You have all of God that there is. And you know, and yet you see that, and you know, and, and, but that doesn't mean that you have the fullness. Because in the Bible, the completeness at salvation and the fullness is something else. Completion is when you got saved, they're now complete in Him. Fullness is the basis is after you get saved, what do you do with the grace that God gave you? to fulfill you in everything that God wants you to be. So complete will be salvation. You get all that he is. Fullness is after salvation, that daily filling of getting everything that God has for you. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 19 proves that point when he's speaking to the church, which is already saved. And he says in verse 19, we are to be filled with the fullness of God. Uh, there's nothing more for you to get. 
Nothing more you to get. The problem is you have it all, but you uh, must develop it. You have it all, but you must do something with it. You have it all, but now you have to grow it. You have it all, but now you have to bring it to a point where it fills every aspect of your life. And I've come over the years to realize that we get it all when we get saved. But I also know that so many of God's people will never do anything with that. And it really comes down to not the fact that how much, uh, you know, how much do you have of God, but it really comes down to how much of, of you does God have? Are you willing to allow that process in your life? And of course, the issue with most of God's people is they won't do that. I remember reading a story a number of years ago, many years ago as a matter of fact, that this guy in a town in America, I forget even where it was, it was just the story was intriguing to me, but he died in poverty. They thought that he probably starved to death. He lived in an old run-down ramshack house outside of town. He, he, didn't, and he, and he was a hermit, a recluse, and uh, nobody had seen him for a couple of weeks or a month, and so the sheriff went out and he found him dead. He died in his own house, died in complete, utter poverty. No water turned on, no heat in the house, no food in the house, and he died. Well, obviously buried him, and the house was such a blight, nobody claimed it, so they were going to tear it down. And once they began to tear it down, you know what? They found over $2 million in the walls of his home. This guy had rattled away, or however he got it, Two million dollars, but he died in poverty. I read that story and I thought to myself, boy, that isn't a picture of most of God's people. You have the riches of Jesus Christ worth a billion dollars in your life right now if you're saved, and yet you're swallowing in poverty, spiritually speaking. And you're starving to death. Why? Because you refuse to develop it. You refuse to do anything with it. And uh, it's one of those things that uh, the issue is that most of God's people just won't do it. You see, Ephesians chapter 4 verse 7 tells us that when you got saved, God gave you a measure of grace. Just a measure of it. He gave you enough grace for you to get saved. He also gave you a measure of faith, the Bible says. So he gave you just a measure of grace and faith for you just to trust Christ. As we develop that grace, as we develop that fullness, or develop it into a fullness, I should say, then it, we, we begin to come to the place where we understand the fullness of God's grace and the fullness of God. And in verse 16 and 17, it talks about grace. And in our salvation, in our Christian life, we are always should have a fullness of God's grace. Now, we think, again, wrongly, we have such a limited view of grace. The standard teaching on it, and it's true, that grace is unmerited favor with God. No question about that. But we always limit grace to our salvation. By grace are you saved through faith. I get that. I understand that. But I want to tell you something. Uh, in the Bible, there are different, many different types of grace that are life that we should build into our lives as we grow and bring it to a point that as we get the fullness of God, we get the fullness of God's grace, not just for salvation. And in the Bible, there are different types of grace. In fact, it, it, uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10 says that we are to be stewards of the manifold grace of God. A manifold means diverse elements to it. 
there's a many different graces that are in God that we need to have in our life, but we stop with salvation. And we never experience the fullness of God because we never understand the fullness of God's grace in its manifold form. We preached the other night, uh, uh, Thursday night, somebody asked about the seven, uh, uh, seven things that we're to be stewards over. And I told you that night that one of them in 1 Peter 4.10, we're to be steward of the manifold grace of God. It just didn't say the grace of God. But that's what most God's people do. Most people only understand grace as it relates to their own salvation. And boy, is that a short end of a trip. That Bible says that we're to be stewards. A steward is somebody who takes care of something for somebody. You and me are God's steward. He gave every, he gave us the Bible. He gave us salvation and he gave us his grace. And we are to be stewards of that. But no, not us. We just take his salvation and never tell anybody else about it. We take his Bible and do nothing with it. And we take grace for our salvation and that's where it ends. And that's why God's people are so shallow today. I mean, that's why they don't really, you know, and we, I told you the other night, again, another Bible study, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15 tells that, that, that we can fail. We can fail in God's grace. Now, that has nothing to do with salvation. Once you're saved, you're eternally saved, but if you don't, if you don't get the manifold grace of God down, you will fail in your Christian life based on not having that grace. I mean, it's an incredible study that, you know, you don't hear preached today. Most pastors are just like most Christians. You're so shadow, all you think about is salvation. You know nothing about the Bible. If somebody had you lay out 1 Peter or the book of Hebrews or, or whatever the case may be and put a gun to your head, your brains would be on the wall before you'd ever open it up. We'll accept the basic things for salvation, but why do we refuse to go any farther than that? And that's just the way it is today. So you will find that when God gave us a measure of grace to be saved, then we develop that grace into everything in life, and that becomes the fullness. Hence, he says, grace for grace. What's he saying? He's saying it takes grace, salvation, where you start to have grace, all the other graces that are the manifold grace of God, or the fullness of God's grace in our lives. We lived in the church age in what is commonly called the dispensation of grace. No question about that. We know it as the church age. And right now, because we're in the dispensation of grace, again, we think that just simply means salvation. We are so limited in our depth when it comes to the Bible that we just think that God's Salvation, is God's grace is strictly just for salvation. And because we're not stewards of the grace of God, the grace of God has failed in our lives. And you're going to see it in Christianity. And I'll tell you, this answers so many questions of why Christianity is the way that it is, why preachers are the way they are, why churches are the way they are, and why God's people do the things that they do the way they do. Now, we look across the board and we see problems in Christianity. We see problems with Christians. And we see it all the time. We're not oblivious to it in our own church. Every church has it. 
And most people just accept that as the norm. I, I never accept anything as a norm. For me, as a Bible student, I know that there's a, there's a principle behind every action. And I may not be able to fix the action, but I can guarantee you I'm going to find out the principle behind it because that's how you grow. That's how you learn. You know, <clears throat> and I don't know if you've even stopped and think about it, and this is just a short list of them, all the things that we are to have grace in our lives that God gives us when he gives us the measure of that grace and we don't stay as a baby Christian, that we develop ourselves and we grow in grace to the fullness of God. Obviously, the first one is salvation. And we know now that we get that by a measure. God will just give you enough grace and enough faith for you to trust Christ. Nobody ever got saved and, and got up off of their knees the day they got saved and had enough grace to forgive somebody that did something wrong to them. Nobody had enough faith to say, well, God's called me to be a missionary. I'm moving for Africa next week. Those things take time, and you have to develop them. And if you don't put a process in your life to develop them, then you don't grow. So here you are, preachers, Christians, been saved, what, 20, 30, 40 years, and they can't even ever get past the concept of salvation in their life. These preachers get in the pulpit, and that's all they know. You have to be saved. Every place they start, they get back to that point. Every verse they give you will just be about getting saved. They couldn't open up the Bible and teach it and lay it out if their life depended on it. And yet they're held up as great Bible teachers. No, you're an idiot. You're someone who got saved, and then for whatever your own personal reason is, you refuse to take it past that point. Because once you get the measure of grace, there's grace... You realize there's grace when you and I get out of fellowship? Now, I guarantee you, all of us got out of fellowship this week. You know what grace is? Grace is the fact that you're still here and God didn't kill us. That's grace. In a Laodicean church, the Laodicean church, the word Laodicea means rights of the people. You know the only right you have as a, as a, as a person, saved or lost? It's to burn in hell and scream your lungs out for all of eternity. You know why you didn't? Because God gave you grace. He gave you grace to get saved, and he gave you grace when you and I screw up that doesn't come down and kill us. You know, in the Old Testament, he came down and killed people that didn't do what's right. If you're a rebellious child in the Old Testament, you didn't get any grace. If you told your mom and dad to, you know, to hit the road and wouldn't do what was right, Dad called the elders together. They tried to say, hey, don't do that if the law says. And you say, well, I ain't paying any attention to you. They just dug a nice hole, put you in it. Everybody got big rocks and mashed your brains out. No grace. Yet you got, you know, I know I was rebellious. Most of you people were rebellious when you were kids. Some of you kids here still are. You know why you're not dead? Grace. Grace. You know, do you know why some people will go through trials and tribulations and come through shining for Christ and others will fall apart? Because there's a grace in going through the trials and temptations of life. 
God's grace will get you through. And when you've never developed God's grace, then you, you, you handle it wrongly and it, it, the grace of God fails you because you failed it. We talk about persecution in the Waldensians, and there's a book back there that everybody ought to read, uh, just simply called the Waldensian, just one of the greatest books that you'll ever pick up and read about the persecution they went under. We've talked about our own brand of persecution that we're going through and, and where it's all going. You know the only thing that'll get you through that? God give you the grace to get through it. You know why some people will fold up and never get through it? Because you don't have the grace to get through it. And it's just that simple. And it's a, it, 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 it's a, it, it's, there's a grace to forgive your enemies. There's going to be people that do you wrong. There's going to be people that don't do right by you. You're going to invest in people and give them things and help them, and they're going to give you a sharp stick in the eye. You know what? You can't go around in life worrying about that. You know how you get past things like that? Grace. God gave you grace to forgive your enemies. God will give you grace to love and to, and to uh, be friendly with the people that you don't like. They don't meet your social standard. It happens in God's people all the time. Well, I don't like him. Well, I don't like her. Well, you know what? God will give you grace to get over that. You know how you get grace to get over that? You know how you get grace? You get, get grace to get over that by realizing that you didn't look too good, sweetheart, the first time God laid eyes on you either. But he did. You know why? He gave you grace. See, we want the grace to us. We just don't want to give it to anybody else. Oh, yeah. God will give you a grace in any given situation to respond to something biblically versus to react to it emotionally. And all these things, you see God's people failing in them today. All of them. Grace to Romans chapter 15, verse 1. You that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak. It takes grace to do that. I mean, I see people do some of the dumbest stuff that I've told them for five years they shouldn't do, and yet they go ahead and do it, and then their world falls apart. So now they bring it to me, and you know what? I got two choices. I could say, I told you so. You deserve it. Enjoy it. You made your bed, and I'll lay in it. That's not grace. You know how many times I screwed up with God before he saved me and I ever came to him? He didn't say that. After, what, 20 years of doing my own thing, he had every right to look at me and say, hey, you made your own bed, pal. Go ahead and do it. I ain't got nothing to do with you. He didn't. You know why? He gave me grace. We're going through COVID-19 right now, the great pandemic coming across America. I saw my doctor this week, and he said, you be careful now. He said, because it's really going to get bad this, this, this winter. It's going to be terrible. And I said, okay, I will. I said, I'll wear two masks instead of one, you know, all those things. And, uh, but you know what? You know what's going to get you through this? Grace. God's Grace. God's grace will get you through. There's so many aspects to it that have nothing to do with salvation, but it starts with the measure you get at salvation. We ought to all be thanking God for every bad thing in our life. A 
Oh, I didn't get any amens on that one. Yeah, you ought to be thanking God for every bad thing that comes into your life. I mean, the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, it says, in all things give thanks. I mean, doesn't the Bible says in Romans 8.28, we know that all things work together for good, and then they love God and called according to his purpose? Why, why, why can't we thank God for the bad things that happen in life? We can certainly thank God for the good things. You know why? Because you don't have any grace. You don't have the grace to see the hand of God works better in the bad things in your life than many times it does through the good things. But we don't like the bad things. Now, we, are, we need to be a steward of the grace, of that grace in our lives. And if we don't, then it fails in our lives. You see, we take God's grace for our salvation, but we'll never develop in our own lives to deal day to day or person to person and bring it into a fullness. So he says, grace for grace. It takes grace to have grace. Now, I know the standard teaching is, as I said, that grace simply means unmerited favor with God. And it does. We got grace. We didn't deserve it. We didn't merit it. We got it. I get it. But that's certainly a shallow, limited understanding of grace because once you get saved, grace is simply after salvation and dealing with people or life, seeing them and understanding them as you view them through our own failures. You know how you get grace toward people? Because you view them through our own failures in life and realize that God put up with us. Why can't we put up with them? See, that's grace. But you don't have that grace the moment you got saved because you just got a measure of it. You got to develop that. You got to bring it to a fullness. And that only comes as you look at yourself in the light of God and the Word of God and you realize, as I said earlier, you don't look too hot the first time God ever looked at you. How dare you or me look at somebody with disdain? How dare you and I not like somebody socially because we, we didn't fit into our picture mode of what we would be? Well, I guarantee you none of us did when God first looked at us. But you see, when you look at people, I, I never try to look at people through what they do wrong or right. No, I get it. Now, you understand. In some, you got a guy who's a pedophile or you got a guy who, you know, whatever, you know, that's a whole different ball game. But I'm saying, in your garden variety Christians, people with your garden variety screw-ups, I, I, I always try to look at you through my screw-ups. It tempers me from saying that person is worthless. Because in my life, there were many times when somebody could have said, Bob's worthless. Thank God that they didn't. Thank God the Lord didn't. And you have to develop that, folks. It doesn't just happen because you come to church, have a King James Bible, and you get saved. You have to develop that. that you have to develop that into a fullness of understanding the manifold grace of God and then being a steward of it. God's people just don't have time for that today. They really don't. You know, it's seeing them and understanding them and then viewing them through your own failures and frailties and then cutting them the same slack that God cut us. 
Grace and our stewardship of it is the great key in our lives that brings us through our walk and our relationship with Christ. Grace will form the balance of our Christian life. Then in verse 17, another great verse that goes along with this, for by the law, for the law was given by Moses, Old Testament, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ, the New Testament. Now we have grace and truth. These two will form the balance of our lives uh, and, and in the completeness of our Christian life. You have you in the middle. You have grace on this side and, and truth on this side, and they balance you out. You're the pinnacle point. But grace and truth are at the outset balance us. These two will be the form the balance of our, 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 our complete life in Christ. You see, it's one thing to have the truth of God, but if you, aren't, if you don't balance it out with the grace, then you're out of balance. Now, you'll see this in a lot of young guys today. I've seen it all my life with guys. You know, and uh, it's guys who get the King James Bible, they get on fire for God, and they'll, uh, they'll be around somebody or some preacher that is a fireball, you know, and uh, they'll never see the full uh, impact of, of that guy's life. All they get is the militant side of it. So they go out, and there's no grace in their life. They beat everybody to death with the Bible. They have no tolerance for anybody. I mean, there are a couple of churches around this town that exactly like that. I mean, uh, they treat the women in that church like they're dogs. Uh, they, they treat everybody in it, and they are so legalistic in their mindset, it's absolutely ridiculous. The women can't wear, the women can't wear slacks. They have to wear dresses or they're ungodly. You know, uh, there's a thing where the guys all wear ties or you're ungodly. It is the stupidest thing on this planet. But the bottom line is they have no grace. They got the truth. You see, this is, a, this, is, this is the way it is today. They will beat people to death with the Bible, uh, but they'll never have the compassion uh, to accept them where they're at and try to help them. And their mindset is, all you need to do is get saved, come to church and tithe, and you'll solve all your problems. No, you won't. And yet you're going to find that in one sense, the majority of God's people are the same way. Christianity today will be basically fall into two simple catalogs and you, or categories, and you can see it all the time. You'll have churches, pastors, and Christians who have grace, but they have no truth. So anything goes. Then you'll have churches and pastors and Christians who have the truth, but no grace, so nothing goes. And it's one or the other. Very few, you will find, have a good biblical balance of the two. And when you find it, you got something special. Much less will they understand how they should, those two things should work in our lives. Grace and truth not only form a balance, but also form the depth of our Christian life. Because both of them, verse 17, grace and truth are the two key elements to Christ's death on the cross and his coming. He came to us by those two. You talk about the depth of God. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18 says, that we are to have the depth of God. And the depth of God, 4.18, will always be based on the fullness of God, Ephesians 4.19, by him dwelling in your heart, Ephesians 4.17. It's just that simple. And grace will be your ability to use the truth that God has given you 
in a right way. Grace will start developing in our lives when we start to see everybody in, through God's eyes, including ourselves first. I mean, ask yourself, How did a man or a woman like each of us, sinful in all respects, get the salvation and get into God's family and experience the love of God? I mean, it's clear in Romans chapter 1 that we don't have anything that God looks for. It's clear in Romans chapter 1 that we can't get to God. It's clear throughout the Bible that all of our righteousness were as filthy rags in the sight of God, the book of Isaiah says. I mean, every place you go, it says that God is holy and we are not. Well, even in the Old Testament, before God would come down and walk through the camp, everything that was unholy had to be taken out or he wouldn't even come down. How in the world with sinners like you and me who are a stench in the nostrils of God, how in the world does a holy God come to us, love us, want us, be not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance when we're about as far away from God's holiness as we could possibly get. Ask yourself that. How does God love an unsaved man to reach out to him? Because you can reach out to God all day long and unless he reaches out to you first and gives you the hand of grace, you're dead in the water. You know what the answer is? He looks at every man and woman on this planet and sees them through the death of Jesus Christ and his blood on Calvary's cross. We got in through his son's death. That's why in the Old Testament, nobody could get in. He hadn't died yet. And when he looks at you and me who was unlovable, when he looks at you and me who was a stench in his nostrils, the only way God can ever have anything to do with us before we get saved is to look at us and see us through the blood of his son on Calvary's cross, and he has to love us and accept us through the death of his son. Only way. And that's how exactly how we should look at the unsaved world and the people that we think we're better than, that we don't like, that we don't care for, that they don't meet up to our standards, is you have to look at them just like he looked at you. You give them the same grace that God gave us. That's grace. Get this. In grace, there will always be forgiveness. Write it down. If you don't hear anything else that I said today, hear that. In grace, there will always be forgiveness. If there is no forgiveness, there is no grace. Grace will be the entry level to forgiveness. <clears throat> now, as you grow in grace and truth, verse 17, and I want you to notice that he says that Jesus Christ came by grace and truth. He said grace first, truth second. Because grace is the gateway to truth. You got grace before you got the truth. You better remember that because it will form in time a balance. It will form in time a fullness. It will form in time a depth. Now, 
<clears throat> this balance and depth and fullness is clearly laid out in the book of Philippians. Without a doubt, Philippians is the model church of a good balance, not only as a church, but as Christians. I've told you before that in the book and in this church, you'll find 10 key verses that uh, of a well-balanced child of God. In this book, there are 10 verses that form the depth, the fullness, and the balance. If you have these 10 in your life and they're working for you, you got it. <clears throat> you got the balance. A depth that other uh, churches don't have. A depth that most Christians don't have. He says in chapter 1, verse 6, that he began a good work in you. You need to understand that. <clears throat> he said in chapter 1, verse 21, that to live is Christ and to die is gain. If you have that working in your life, really? He said in 2, 5, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. Is it? He said in 2.10 uh, <clears throat> that know that every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess. Do you understand that? He said in 3.10, know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, be made conformable to death. Do you understand that? He said in 3.13, forgetting those things behind and press forward to the prize. Do you get it? He said in 4-7, the peace of God, keep your hearts in mind. Does it? He said in 4-11, whatever state I'm in, therewith to be content. Oh, wow. Is that true? He said in 4-13, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Do you understand that concept? And then he closes out in 419, my God shall supply all of your need according to riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Is it working for you? See these 10 things here? That's a balance. These 10 things here, that's a fullness. If you have these 10 things working in your life, you have the fullness of God and God's grace. You can't miss. Because these 10 verses will be the absolute key to a balance in our lives. Grace will always form the foundation by which truth will be built on to form the proper balance. And when a child of God, a church, or a pastor is balanced, you will observe the following characteristics in their life. Hands down. And you want to get these down, not on just paper, but in your life. You show somebody who's got the fullness and understands the balance in their life, they will be self-reliant. They'll be self-confident but they'll never be self-sufficient because they'll always have to go back to God. They'll be steadfast, but they'll not be stubborn. They'll be tactful in their approach, but they'll never be timid. They'll be serious in that they do for God, but never sullen. That means gloomy. Sour mood, depressed. They'll be unmovable in their doctrine, but they're never stationary because they're flexible, adaptable. They'll be tender, but never touchy. They'll be generous, but never gullible. They'll be meek, 
but never weak. They'll be gentle, but never hypersensitive. And having the truth of the Word of God in all things, but also the grace of God in all things to deal with it biblically through the eyes of the Lord. And one of the great verses on grace that is the master of all verses, which is untainable today for most of God's people, is Psalms 119, 165. Great peace have they that love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. Seeing it through the eyes of God. And how do we see things through his eyes? Simple. By reading his mind, understanding how he looks at things and why. And that mind will be, as we saw last week, the written word of God. In you, Philippians 2, 5, that instructs you, 1 Corinthians 2, 11, and you're to arm yourself with it, 1 Peter 4, 1. A proper understanding of grace and truth will not only produce a good balance, but it will produce a real depth in your life. Depth in a Christian's life Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18. If you don't have this down, the balance, the concept of grace and truth is a double wipeout for God's people. This is the reason why God's people today hold grudges against other people. They don't have any grace. They have truth, but they don't have any grace to use that truth in the right way. This is why people today in God's people will get bitter. They'll get angry. They won't deal with the anger. They'll have an issue. They won't deal with the issue. And bitterness sets in. And the reason why they get bitter is because you may have truth, but you don't have any grace. It's the reason why people leave churches. You can get your nose bent out about something. There's no perfect church. And as I've told you many times, if you find that perfect church, don't join it because it won't be perfect anymore. But it's the reason why people leave churches. You'll get your nose bent out of joint about something. Something will happen. You can't get 200 people together and everybody happy with everything that goes on. But instead of having an issue and finding out and exercising the grace to solve the problem, they won't do that. It's easier for them to get their nose bent in a joint, trump something up to make themselves look good. Heavy on the word trump. Trump something up to make himself look good. Make up some reason why they're mad now to justify why they're leaving and the real reason why they're not dealing with the... Hey, I want to tell you, other than a doctrinal issue, there should be nothing that two of God's people can't work out coming through the Scriptures together. But you know what it takes to do that? Grace. It's the reason why they lose their families. It's the reason why they lose the blessings of God. No grace in your life, then there'll be no real truth in your life. No truth in your life, then there'll be no real grace in your life, so there's no forgiveness in your life. And when you lose grace and truth, then there's no real witness in your life anymore. I mean, come on, can we, can we talk here? I mean, how, uh, uh, how do you get up and preach or 
tell somebody or witness to somebody. How do you tell honestly? I mean, are you just as crooked as a bank robber? I mean, pretty boy Floyd had nothing on most of us. How in the world can we get up and preach or talk and witness about God's grace to somebody else when it's failed in our own lives? The real witness of the believer will be the grace that he gives people based on the truth that he gives to God's people. And grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. The idea that we want to be something for God, but we can't give grace to other people, or even worse than that, even understand the manifold grace. Sticking in that little mindset, well, get up and talk about grace being unfair, merited favor with God to be saved. If that's all the farther you are, sit down and shut up. And God's people today, they're the most graceless people you will ever encounter. We need to be full of grace, but on the other side, we're not. We're just full of ourselves. You know, the greatest example and story of grace in all the Bible is found in 2 Samuel chapter 9 will be the story of Mephibosheth. Now, here's the greatest picture in all the Bible of God's grace to us and then what we, based on that grace, give to others. I'll not take the time to go through the read it all today. I'll just tell you the story because it's the, the, the moral of the story is what we want. But in the storyline, first off, David is the king during this time, and he in the story will be a type and a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ in our study. Then you have a man by the name of Ziba. Ziba will represent for us a type of the Holy Spirit of God who gets the sinner to Christ. Then you have you and me, Mephibosheth. The name Mephibosheth means breathing shame. Now, when you do a little quick study of Mephibosheth, you'll find that he is the grandson of Saul. We know that Saul is a type of the devil. He's a type of the Antichrist. So that immediately puts him, John 8, 44, in the wrong family. That also immediately, if you know your history, makes Mephibosheth the arch enemy of David. Because Saul tried to kill David, hated David, was David's enemy all his life. So now we have one of the left of David of Saul, Mephibosheth, who by birth, John 8, 44, you of your father the devil and the lust of your father as you will do, is God's enemy, David. Not only that, but the Bible says Mephibosheth is lame on his feet. He can't walk straight. He's clothed in filthy rags. He's a beggar. Isaiah 64, 6, that's a picture of all of our righteousness as a filthy rags in the sight of God. He's a beggar. His name means breathing shame. He can't walk. And he's David's enemy. He's a perfect picture of you and me who was God's enemy because you and I, before we were saved, we were in the wrong family. We too were breathing shame to a holy God in everything, in our way of life. 
We too were enmity toward God. We were alienated from God. God was holy. We were breathing shame. And then in our story, one day, David, picture of God, sends Ziba, picture of the Holy Spirit of God, to go bring this worthless sinner to David, a type of Christ. You know, there was a day in your life and my life when God Almighty said to the Holy Spirit of God, you can put your name in here. Go get that guy. Go get that gal. Bring him to me. We were all like Mephibosheth. We were all lame on our feet. We all were breathing shame to a holy God. By rights, God should have had absolutely nothing to do because we were his enemy, just like David should have had nothing to do with Mephibosheth. But just like Mephibosheth found grace in David's eyes, praise the Lord, we found grace in God's eyes. And we, like Mephibosheth, were so unworthy, dirty, filthy before the king. Now, I'm guaranteeing you, Mephibosheth is scared to death. He can't run. He can't get a plane ticket out of town. He's stuck. And now knocking on his door is Ziba. When I'm sure with a host of people who are going to take him to see the king. And he is sure that David has called him to kill him to settle the last old score with David's arch enemy, Saul. And under the Old Testament law, David has every right to do that. When he comes in there to David, verse 8, he says, Why look upon such a dead dog as I? And you know what? He isn't dead yet, but he's thinking he's soon going to be. But I'm telling you, how surprised, how surprised he was to find grace in David's eyes. Instead of getting what he deserved by being in the wrong family, the enemy of God, David made him one of his sons. In verse 9, David, he's a beggar. He has nothing. He deserves nothing. But in verse 9, David gave him an inheritance. He probably hasn't eaten for days, and what he does eat, he probably gets out of the garbage cans, and he has nothing to eat, and he's, he's starving to death, and he's a beggar, and what he gets is people scraps that people leave him. But in verse 13, David sets him at the king's table, and he eats the king's meat. And you can read the story six ways from Sunday in any way you want to, but I'm telling you the reason why this story exists is to show you a picture of what God did for you and for me. Because Mephibosheth got that by grace, and you and I got exactly what we got because of God's grace. God made us his sons. God's given us an inheritance. And we sit at the king's table and we eat this book 
on a buffet style that you can have as much as you want. But so many of God's people will take the grace to be saved and never do anything with the manifold grace of God of being a steward. And that's why you've been saved, what, 15, 20, 30 years? And you know more, know more about the Bible now than the day you got saved. Your, your, your whole world is limited to what you know about salvation and nothing more. You're just like 99% of the pastors in this country. You've never moved beyond that. And I'm telling you, we can write our names in this story if you're saved today because you and I were that dead dog, dead in trespasses of sin. And God gave us grace when we didn't deserve it. And now, being Christ-like with God's mind, we should give grace to each other by developing that fullness. This is why the Bible says in the church of Jesus Christ there is no schism. Doesn't mean you won't have differences of opinion. Doesn't mean you won't have issues. It doesn't mean you don't understand something right, or maybe you do understand it and you still get your nose bent out of joint. There's a process of grace. Grace for grace. There's a process of dealing with situations with other people just like Jesus dealt with you. Come now. Let us reason together, saith the Lord. Because there can't be, there should be nothing that two of God's people can't work out. That's not a doctrinal issue. The personal little issues that people, the reason why people don't, it's because you didn't want to do right in the first place. And in your life, no matter how you want to pretend you were right or how you want to pretend that you were, I'm telling you right now, in your life, grace has failed you. Because you know what? You can have truth and you don't have grace, you don't have forgiveness. So you're just like the whole Christian mindset today. People think that, and I get it, I hear it all the time. People think, well, so-and-so didn't get it right with me, so therefore I'm not going to forgive them. Oh, really? You didn't. I mean, God gave, forgave you your sins on the cross <clears throat> 2,000 years or so before you ever even committed them. You see, that kind of stupidity, I've seen people all my life, well, you know what, I'm not going to forgive that person because they didn't ask for forgiveness. What has that got to do with it? God forgave you 2,000 years before you asked for it. You don't forgive people based on what they do or what they don't do. You do it based on what God did for you. You know what? When God gave, forgave you and me before we ever, ever were born, God died for our sins on the cross and he forgave us our sins in Christ for Christ's sake. And in your life and my life, when there's somebody out there that won't do what's right or somebody out there that won't do what the Bible says, you forgive them for no other reason, for Christ's sake. Do for them what he did for you. That's grace. And grace and truth came by Jesus Christ, and you've got to have a balance of both of them. The two absolutes in a balance in any Christian's life, providing a depth and a fullness. And remember, grace and truth will always lead to forgiveness. 
No grace in your life, no real truth in your life, no truth in your life, no real grace in your life, and without grace and truth, there'll be no forgiveness to others in your life. And in our lives, the grace of God fails. He says, grace for grace. It ain't enough just to get the grace by measure to get saved. You need to do something with it. You need to take it and develop it. You need to bring it through the process and let it become the fullness of God's grace for grace in your life. And you need to then be a steward of it. That's the balance in your life. That's the depth in your life. That's the fullness of God in your life. Well, we'll hold up there.